Hey everyone, Andrew here. Remember how for almost the last year I've been talking about publishing some episodes regarding physical exam and cardiac auscultation? Well, today is the first of those episodes and we're going to be focusing in on aortic stenosis and discussing the historical findings and the physical exam findings that can help improve our exam and bedside grading of aortic stenosis. I'm joined by an incoming intern at Barnes Jewish Hospital, uh, Shreyas Venkataraman. Thanks goes out to the folks over at Think Labs who produced the Think Labs One stethoscope. This is a digital stethoscope that I have found very useful in my clinical practice and recording a library of heart murmurs and heart sounds. Please note that all patients provided consent for the use of these recordings. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and with that, We'll get started. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Hey, everyone. Uh, It's Andrew here. Uh, I'm joined today with a new uh, member of the team for AP Cardiology, and I will let uh, Shreyas introduce himself for you all. Hey everyone, uh, this is Shreyas. I'm an incoming intern in Bond's Jewish Hospital and the newest member of the AP Cardiology team. Hey Andrew, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Shreyas? Well, I'm doing wonderful. Uh, we are, Shreyas is teaming up with me. He's helping me out today uh, with doing, starting our series on the physical exam. And so we wanted to discuss about aortic stenosis, uh, the physical exam for aortic stenosis. Uh, and which parts of the physical exam are most useful in clinching that diagnosis at the bedside. Um, And so with that, how about we start with our case? So today we have a patient presenting to the clinic, a 72-year-old man with a history of chronic kidney disease, stage 3 and diabetes, who presents with dyspnea on exertion and occasional presyncope. On further questioning, he denies any chest pressure with exertion, autopnea, and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Uh, His past medical history is significant for type 2 diabetes, uh, for which he's on insulin. His family history is not significant. His social history is significant for a 20-pack year smoking history, and he has one to two beers a week. I think we can stop right here. Perfect, yeah. So a 72-year-old man, this is obviously an episode on aortic stenosis, so we're going to be biased approaching it, but dyspneonic exertion is a very common symptom, and there is a whole differential there, and I would refer you to like the clinical problem solvers for a better discussion on how to like approach dyspneonic exertion. But when we're thinking about aortic stenosis, there are specific parts of the history uh, that can be helpful and the physical exam in helping increase your uh, the probability of that diagnosis. Uh, Shreyas, through our discussion today, we're going to be talking a lot about likelihood ratios. Do you want to just give us a little primer on how to use likelihood ratios when we're thinking about these points? Oh, for sure. So in Dr. McGee's uh, evidence-based physical diagnosis, um, he explains you know, the 2-5-10 rule, which is a great shortcut for likelihood ratios where we can translate pre-test probabilities into post-test probabilities without the use of odds. And uh, the 2-5-10 rule uh, essentially uh, means that a likelihood ratio of 2 increases the post-test probability by 
factor of 15 or 15 percentage points, a likelihood ratio of five increases the probability, uh, post-test probability by 30 percentage points and a likelihood ratio of 10 markedly increases the post-test probability by 45%. So if there were six numbers we had to remember, they would be two, five, 10, 15, 30, and 45. This is for a positive likelihood ratio and an increase in the post-test probability. In contrast, um, the reciprocal of two, five, and 10, that is 0 0.5, 0 0.2, and 0 0.1, conveniently decrease the risk, uh, post-test probability rather, by 15, 30, and 45% respectively. So to briefly summarize, let's remember the numbers 2, 5, and 10, increasing and decreasing the probability by 15, 30, and 45% respectively. Beautiful. Love it. And thank you for that review because in the literature on physical diagnoses, the most common thing that's reported is going to be likelihood ratios. And so it's hard to then think about how that then translates at the bedside. So we're thinking about this patient that we just discussed. So we have a 72 year old, he's male, he's diabetic. So that in and of itself is going to increase, you know, our pretest probability for aortic stenosis, all comers in that age range and are going to have somewhere between a five and a 10%, you know, prevalence of aortic stenosis. And really like the historical findings that we present, you know, dyspion exertion, maybe some occasional presyncope, most of these aren't very helpful. In fact, they have, they have a lot of information in terms of prognosis, mm -hmm. but in terms of diagnosis, they're not super helpful. So like effort syncope is the only well-studied, you know, historical trait or characteristic, and it really only increases the probability of aerostenosis with a likelihood ratio of 1.3. So that's less than two, that's less than a 10% increase mm -hmm. from our pre to our post-test probability. Everything else, you know, he's, we're talking about the chest discomfort, dyspnea exertion, as I said earlier, they're so common that they're really not helpful in differentiating between other cardiac or respiratory causes. Yeah, it's interesting that you would say that, Andrew, because we hold on to these historical findings. But, but having said that, uh, you know, they do point us to, you know, a more accurate physical exam. Yeah, no, they do. And so it should tune your mind in and think, okay, I need to pay attention to specific things on my exam. So let's continue with this case. So on his, his vital exams, his blood pressures measured at 110 over 60. His heart rate uh, was 90 beats per minute with a regular rate and rhythm. His respiratory rate was 18 breaths per minute and he was satting at 97%. Uh, what do you think about that, Andrew? Yeah. To me, those are pretty unremarkable vital signs and just indicates to me the person has normal blood pressure, kind of a higher heart rate, a little tachycardic. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, the person is not in shock and they are apparently stable, like someone you'd probably see in your clinic. And what are your thoughts on pulses with uh, patients uh, having a history suggestive of aortic stenosis? Like, do, you th do you think of certain things while you're examining these patients' pulses? So in evaluating patients with aortic stenosis, I always evaluate their carotid pulses. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for a couple of things. I'm looking for a diminished pulse, mm -hmm. you know, less volume. And then I'm also looking for a delayed upstroke in that pulse. And so in particular, the decreased volume in the carotid pulse, it will increase your likelihood ratio of aortic stenosis 
by 2.3, which still is small. It's like 10% increase of your, in your post-test probability. It's interesting that you would say that, Andrew. Um, but another uh, finding that could uh, help us is, the, is a delay in pulse in relation to two pulses that can be felt within the body. And two findings that are commonly used are the apicocarotid delay and the brachioradial delay, uh, where um, the apical impulse is compared uh, temporally with the uh, timing of the carotid impulse for the apicocarotid delay. And the brachial uh, pulse is, the timing of the brachial pulse is uh, uh, timed with the radial pulse. And uh, any delay is abnormal. Even the slightest delay that can be felt is abnormal. So, um, so this finding is, is helpful in the way that if there is an absence of an apicocarotid or a brachioradial delay, it markedly reduces the likelihood ratio of aortic stenosis. So uh, it has a likelihood ratio of 0 0.04 and 0 0.05, which is amazing where it reduces the, the probability uh, by around 50%, which is amazing. But interestingly enough, the presence of these two findings doesn't help as much. Gotcha. So that's a useful test to, to say that they don't have aortic stenosis and to say that they have a normal, uh, that there's no delay in their pulses. They have a normal timing between the brachial and the radial pulse. Correct. Yeah. Perfect. Let's go so, on more with our exam. Perfect. All right. So, so on, on general appearance, he's alert and oriented times three. There is no neck vein distension on head and ENT examination. His lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. Uh, while we examine his cardiovascular system, on palpation, I, interestingly enough, I feel a sustained apical impulse in the fifth intercostal space at the midclavicular line. I don't know what that really means. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Andrew? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sustained apical impulse. You're describing the fifth intercostal space in the midclavicular line. I'm pretty simple, and I think, like, is it near the nipple? Is it not near the nipple? And that's uh -huh. pretty close to the nipple from what you were describing. So that's a mm -hmm. normal point of maximal impulse. And this, a, a sustained apical impulse would indicate that there's increased pressure and it's more delayed. And that can happen when your LV pressure is in, the pressure inside your LV while it's contracting against a fixed gradient can be sustained for longer periods of time. And that might be what you could be feeling mm -hmm. when you're examining those patients. Mm -hmm. But at the same token with all the other exam findings we've been talking about so far, a, a sustained apical impulse is also not very helpful. Again, a likelihood mm -hmm. ratio of four. Um, and so that's somewhere around, you know, 20 to 30% increase in, in the, in the like, in the post test probability of aortic mm -hmm. stenosis. Interesting. Okay. And, uh, sometimes you hear a thrill too, don't you? So if you feel for a thrill rather. Yeah, so another thing part of the exam is that I can put my hand over the patient's uh, chest, over their mm -hmm. sternum. And if I feel a thrill, you know, that's an indication that there's a lot of turbulent flow in there. And mm -hmm. more turbulent flow is associated with a greater severity of aortic stenosis. All right. So we went over a lot of numbers, a lot of likelihood ratios, and a lot of percentages. I think this would be a good time to just pause, take a step back, briefly review what we talked about right now. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, let's do it. Wonderful. So there's no definitive historical finding that increases the probability 
of aortic stenosis. But having said that, it does help us perform a more uh, directed and more focused physical exam. That's the first uh, take home point. Uh, secondly, the absence of an apical carotid or a brachioradial impulse markedly reduces the likelihood of aortic stenosis, the absence that is. But the presence, interestingly enough, does not help as much. Uh, and finally, a sustained apical impulse increases the probability of aortic stenosis by around 30%. Beautiful. And so now let's turn towards uh, auscultating. Uh -huh. And we have, I have two recordings to play for you and we'll be able to compare both of them. So here's the first recording of a heart sounds that you might hear when you examine this patient. Now, here is a second recording of something that you might hear. Okay, now let's play that again simultaneously so that we can compare the two different murmurs heard in two different patients. Right, so let me try and uh, describe the murmur for you, Andrew. So what I heard was, um, at least with the more obvious murmur we heard initially, uh, I heard a harsh systolic murmur. I heard it over the left lower sternal border and over the base of the heart on the right side. So what are the things I think about when I'm auscultating the heart? So. So I look for heart sounds. Um, so I look for the S1 sounds, and then I look for S2. With, and I look for any murmurs that could potentially exist. So I take the time to go to a quiet room and listen for murmurs. Um, and when I do hear a murmur, I make sure I, I focus on where I hear the murmur best on the chest. Secondly, I make sure I understand when I hear the murmur best. I try and understand where the murmur radiates. And finally, I try to describe the murmur like I had done earlier, uh, where I define it as harsh and so on and so forth. So what are your thoughts about what we just heard right now, Andrew? Yeah, so first off, the fact that we're examining the patient and that we're hearing a murmur at least should give us a consideration that there is aortic stenosis or that they have some valvular disease. When I examine patients, I feel their pulse so that I can so that I know what the timing if the pulse if the murmur is systolic or if it's diastolic. Uh -huh. And here with this murmur, we'll just have to take our word for it that this is a systolic murmur and we can mm -hmm. hear a crescendo uh, murmur here. Another thing, so that we've identified systolic, we've identified that it's harsh, 
Um, the harshness really is just something that comes with experience of listening to various people with different murmurs about how severe that harshness is. And then location, as we've all learned in medical school, can give us an indication of where um, that certain murmurs for different valves can occur in different, in different places there. But just even the fact that we're hearing a murmur suggests there is aortic stenosis. If there's no murmur, that really reduces the likelihood of, of having aortic stenosis with a likelihood ratio of 0.1. So Shreyas, how do you grade murmurs? Okay, so um, they're graded on the Levine's scale. So he defined it as grade one to grade six, with grade one being a murmur maybe only Braunwald himself could have heard. <laughs> Uh, and from then on, I think uh, we can, um, you know, understand it as us hearing it better, where uh, maybe grade one is something, some is a murmur, um, maybe an attending cardiologist hears best, a grade two being a murmur a cardiology fellow hears best, a grade three murmur being uh, a murmur that a resident hears best, and a grade six murmur. Uh, being something I can hear best. So, <laughs> and uh, essentially the uh, threshold to uh, split uh, the uh, Levine scale is a uh, point between grade three and four, where if there's a thrill present, it becomes grade four. And if there's, a, if there's no thrill, it is grade three. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a good way to think about these murmurs. Um, I think back in the day when we didn't have echocardiography, I think this was relevant, but I think, but even, it allows us to have a more intelligent conversation about uh, about murmurs when we grade them this way, I guess. What do you think about it? Yeah, and so I've, we probably live in an era where we're not going to hear any grade six murmurs at this point. Probably yeah. all that we'll be hearing are grade three and grade four at the most severe of our murmurs. And yeah, I totally agree with you. Grade one murmurs are going to be murmurs that I really struggle to hear consistently. Like mm -hmm. a nice, quiet, grade one mitral stenosis murmur is going to be very hard to hear. Mm -hmm. Perfect. All right. So, um, so uh, what are you thinking about uh, with this murmur, Andrew? Another thing we haven't touched on yet is about the S1 and S2 sounds. Mm -hmm. So in the second example that we listened to, we don't hear a clear S2 sound. And the absence of S2 is a very specific finding that indicates the severity of aortic stenosis. Mm -hmm. In fact, not hearing an S2 increases the likelihood of aortic stenosis by with a likelihood ratio of 12.7, meaning an increase in probability of well over 50%. So a very mm -hmm. powerful uh, predictor in the severity. And in fact, the absence of S2 should not just the should indicate not just the presence of aortic stenosis, but should be an indicator that this person likely has severe aortic stenosis. So from what we've talked about until now, this seems like the strongest finding that helps us direct our attention a particular way. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So the parts that we've hit on most far that, that people talk about a lot at the bedside are the murmur radiating to the carotids, which we have discussed, isn't as helpful. The harshness of the murmur as well is not very differentiating about the severity of aortic stenosis. However, the absence of S2 is a very powerful predictor and should be something that we really pay attention to when we're examining patients with aortic stenosis. And uh, 
what are your thoughts about the murmur itself? Yeah, so the murmur itself, I would describe this as a harsh murmur, and I would describe it as a crescendo, so it's getting louder, and kind of a later peaking murmur that we're hearing. Mm -hmm. Additionally, you had mentioned that you were hearing this heart sound along the left lower sternal border, and the right, and the right upper sternal border, and also at the apex. And the mm -hmm. fact that we can hear the murmur throughout all these different points um, where we auscultate the heart commonly indicates that um, is a more powerful predictor of the likelihood of aortic stenosis as well. Whereas if we're only hearing the murmur when we're auscultating over the aortic position, we may just be fooled and tricked into hearing a systolic ejection murmur, which, which sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what else do you think about when you listen to this murmur? When we talk about radiation of the murmur and it radiates to the carotids, Mm. that is something that's also discussed a lot and something that I always examine for as well. Mm -hmm. However, the utility of that in increasing my likelihood of aerostenosis is also only mild or moderately helpful. The likelihood ratio of, of aerostenosis when the murmur radiates to the carotids is only 2 to 3.5, which again mm -hmm. is somewhere around you know, a 10 to 20% increase in, in the post-test probability. Yeah. So it's not too much. It doesn't really help us. A finding which we usually associate with aortic stenosis doesn't really help us as much. Yeah. I mean, I mean, all of these things, like, you know, you have a couple of different findings and they can all add up. And mm -hmm. so that's when they're helpful. But basically, each one of these findings in and of itself, aside from the presence or absence of S2, is not very powerful in and of itself, which is why an echocardiogram Mm -hmm. is usually very helpful in delineating these, the etiology of the murmur and the severity of aortic stenosis for these patients. That said, there should be one, some caveats when interpreting an echocardiogram report because the physical exam findings uh, and the echo reports sometimes may disagree. Mm -hmm. For example, you may examine someone, you may hear a harsh, late-peaking systolic murmur radiates to the carotids and you don't hear an S2 but when you order your echocardiogram and you're looking at the report afterwards, you might see findings with the mean gradients and peak velocities that are more consistent within the moderate aortic stenosis range and not clearly severe aortic stenosis. And there, it's helpful to realize that there can be some limitations to echocardiogram in the fact that the peak velocities and the mean gradients may be uh, falsely reported as low if the sonographer is unable to get in direct alignment with the flow through the aortic valve, which in some patients may happen. And so you may not be getting the actual true peak velocity or the actual true mean gradient. And so in those cases, if you are having a physical exam that's most consistent with severe aortic stenosis, um, but your patient's echocardiogram is in disagreement with that, that's a time where you need to pause and think, perhaps I need more information and think about a cardiac catheterization study or possibly repeating the echocardiogram and being more specifically in looking for the looking for severe aortic stenosis. Amazing. Amazing. All right. So we talked quite a bit about auscultation in these patients. So let me briefly review what we talked about. So um, if there's one point you take home, it's the fact that the absence uh, of S1 and most reliably the S2 
markedly increases the probability of aortic stenosis by as much as 50 to 55 percent. Um, there is a very broad um, pattern of location when we hear for these murmurs. It's defined as an apical basal, basal pattern where it can be heard in, on multiple locations uh, in the precordium. And finally, radiation of the murmur does not distinctly increase, increase the risk of uh, aortic stenosis. Beautiful. No, that was a great discussion. I'm really glad that we were able to get together and do this, Shreyas. Yep. And uh, I learned quite a bit. Andrew, thank you for having me here. It was wonderful. And uh, hopefully the next aortic stenosis patient gets a better examination. Yeah, hopefully. Mine, mine probably will get a better examination too after this discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This show is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. Much thanks to the band,